you'll join me in the book of Jude, <clears throat> the letter of Jude, it's almost the very end of your Bible, the book just before Revelation. If you're using the blue ESV Bible, it is on page 1027, the letter of Jude. This morning we will be looking at verses 17 through 23. The title of our sermon is Keeping Yourself in the Love of God, and our keywords for our worshipers in training are keep, love, and Mercy. Now, what is your greatest possession? What do you hold in your life that you consider most valuable? And if everything else in your life were to go away and you could only keep one thing, this would be it. What if you have something that you had no idea what the value of it really is and later found out that it was actually a very valuable treasure? How does that change when you find out? How does that change the way you think about it and look at it and take care of it? Responding to a newspaper advertisement, a man named Carl Rice attended a public estate sale in 1996 in Tucson, Arizona. And for many years, Mr. Rice had been going to garage sales and estate sales and auctions. And he was buying up everything that he could find that looked good and, and maybe was of some value. And he got in the habit of taking pictures of the items. And then he would send those pictures off to Sotheby's and Christie's of New York to see if there was any value to them. And he had collected over the years over 80 rejection letters, so much so that Sotheby's even stopped responding to him. Now, Mr. Rice had bought a lot of junk over the years, a lot of different kinds of art, but he was no, by no means any kind of educated purchaser. Obviously, he'd never made more than $55 in selling a piece of art again. He said, everything I ever bought turned out to be a fraud, a forgery, or is painted by a less popular Artist. So when he went to the estate sale of Mr. Kenneth Newman in 1996, he assumed the two paintings he bought for $60 were just like all of the others, especially given that this estate sale was being managed by a professional company who would, be, would know the items that were for sale and what their value would be. Nevertheless, once he got home, he did as he always did. He took pictures of the paintings, and he compared the signatures that he found to the signatures in a book of artists, noticing that they appeared to be similar of that of the late night, uh, the, the well-known 19th century landscape artist Martin Johnson Heed. And as was his practice, uh, Mr. Rice sent pictures to Christie's in New York, and if they were authentic or valuable, he would hear back from them. And Christie's response was almost immediate. They authenticated the paintings, Magnolia Blossoms on Blue Velvet and Cherokee Roses. They were painted by head. They were offering to sell them for him on consignment. Subsequently, they sold the paintings at auction for $1,072,000, and after subtracting the buyer's premiums and the commission and his initial $60 that he spent, Mr. Rice took home $911,780 from his sale. Well, Mr. Newman, who initially sold the paintings to Mr. Rice, learned on the, the, the sale the next year because it made the news, and he sued Mr. Rice, alleging that the initial sale should be rescinded or reformed on grounds of mutual mistake and unconscionability. 
Mr. Newman argued that the parties were not aware that the transaction involved fine art, believing instead that the items of exchange were, quote, relatively valueless wall decorations. Mr. Rice argued that the estate bore risk of mistake. It was their item to sell. They should have known what they were selling before they sold it. And the trial court concluded that although the parties had been mistaken, uh, they agreed with Mr. Rice. The estate should have known what they were selling before they sold it. So according, accordingly, the court ruled in favor of the defendant, and uh, he went on to pay over $330,000 in personal income taxes on his sale. He paid off his house, he set up a trust, and he used a modest amount for living expenses. Not bad for a $60 purchase at an estate sale. Now, we hear that story, and probably most of us think, of course, he should have won the case. It's obvious they should have found out what they were selling before they sold it. It was his fault, his loss for selling things at such a cheap price. But if you were in Mr. Newman's position, you can certainly understand why he was upset. We understand why we want to hold on to something of tremendous value and how differently we treat it when we find out that it is actually valuable. What would you give to take hold of it or get it back after you had lost it when you find its true value? We understand possessiveness. We we feel it in our own lives, especially when it's attached to something good especially when it's attached to something like our faith or the Scriptures or the wonderful Christian doctrine that's been given to us by God. You know, many of us have half a dozen, a dozen Bibles in our house, sitting on our shelves, sitting on our tables. We take that for granted. Imagine one day they weren't there anymore. How differently would we think about the Word of God were it not available to us. Sometimes we may get the sense that our, our beliefs are slipping away. The things we have held dear maybe feel distant to us, or it may seem like someone we know or someone we love is on the verge of losing it all together. What should we do at times like that when we don't recognize the value anymore? How should we respond? Well, in our text this morning, Jude helps us to answer that by giving us three very simple imperatives, three commands that we need to be regularly reminded of. There's, there's nothing here that's earth-shattering, nothing ground-breaking, that's, uh, there's nothing novel or unique. If you've been a Christian for even a short time, it's likely that you've heard each one of these things. And yet, our God is a God of means, our God is a God of reminders, He uses specific means to bring about the ends he desires in the lives of his people. And while very simple in theory, these are things that Christians often find very difficult to apply. But the application of these means in our lives is the very thing God calls us to if we are to communicate a faithfulness to our lives. If we are to walk faithfully with him, passing from this life on to the next. So Jude tells us three things. He tells us what we are to avoid. He tells us what we are to keep. And he tells us what we must be. Avoid, keep, and be. And we will look at each of them individually. First, look with me at verses 17 through 19. Here Jude tells us to avoid 
worldliness. Read with me. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions. Worldly people devoid of the Spirit. Now, as a reminder of the context here in which Jude writes, it's important for us to look back at verses 3 and 4, where Jude gives us the reasons why he's penning the letter in the first place. Remember, he wrote this, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people, who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. And so we've looked at what Jude has said about these false teachers who have brought this message contrary to the gospel into, uh, uh, into the church, and they have deliberately sought to lead the people of God astray. He showed us more specifically the kinds of things that were being promoted by the false teachers. They were very much tied up into sexual immorality and the sensuality of the flesh and and all kinds of rebellion against God. Ultimately, the false teachers showed us by their actions that they were rejectors of God. They rejected God and His authority altogether and yet claimed that they submitted to it. So when we look at verses 17 and 18, Jude is directly addressing these false teachers. He reminds his readers, this is what the apostles told us would happen. There are going to be false teachers, those who are scoffers that mock the faith, and they will follow after their own ungodly passions. They're going to say that what God says is too harsh. What God says is too restrictive, or, or they'll tell you he didn't mean what he said. He meant something else. It, it can be interpreted a very different way, or uh, you, you can be engaged. It's not a problem if you're engaged in, in sinful sexual immorality or all kinds of other things, because in the end, these false teachers are all a law unto themselves then you can see very simply how verse 19 follows. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. It doesn't take a a world-class scholar to understand what Jude is saying here. A rejection of God and His authority and a full immersion of oneself into the ungodly, sensual desires of the flesh will end up dividing the people of God. It will end up dividing the church because it is nothing short of worldliness. That is what these false teachers are doing. And by implication, we understand that Jude's warning to us then is to avoid these teachers and to avoid their actions. Don't do what they do. Don't do what they encourage you to do. And and he also alludes to their spiritual condition, namely that they may say they're Christians, they want to claim that they're walking with Christ, but what is obvious about them is that they are devoid of the Spirit. And that's a very important statement he makes there by implication. What What is he saying? Well, the reality that we know from the rest of Scripture is that if one is said to be devoid of the Spirit... It is to say they're not justified, they're not in the faith, they are not Christians 
in actuality. And that's an important thing as we talk about apostasy, because the whole premise of apostasy, that word, has for us these connotations of one leaving the faith. And that's truly what it is. That one is stepping away from the faith. But the question we have to ask, if we believe, and I do, I hope you do, that once we are saved, that we cannot lose our salvation, that we are preserved by God in our salvation, how is it that one then could lose the faith or walk away from the faith? Well, we know from 1 John, what John writes in chapter 2 and verse 19, he says, they went out from us because they were never of us in the first place. In other words, they, they were in our midst, they put on all of the right display of Christian-like things in their lives. They came to church for a time. They may have even said some helpful or useful things about the Bible. But in the end, they walked away from the faith. Why was that? Because in the end, they prove themselves truly to have never been saved in the first place. Jesus kind of deals with that also, if you recall, in the parable of the sower, the parable of the, the soils, his sort of description of the same thing. Now, if you think about it, this is all very similar to what Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 5. He gives us a comparison of what it means to live according to the flesh versus what it means to live by the Spirit. Remember, he writes this, Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So what is he saying? If you live an ungodly life, you are proving by your life that you were never in the faith in the first place. You're living by the flesh. You're living in worldliness. You will not inherit the kingdom of God. This very simply is a more detailed description of what Jude is saying and what worldliness is. If you've, ever never, if you've never really tried to define what worldliness is, this is it. Galatians 5 tells us it's another way to say that we're living by the flesh, doing the works of the flesh. But then Paul goes on to describe a life lived in the Spirit or in accordance with the Spirit. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So if we're walking with Christ, the things of the flesh that we've mentioned, these things of worldliness, we will put to death. By God's grace. So if you put that with what Jude is saying, we have a clearer picture. These false teachers were doing the very things that we look at in their lives and Paul describes as worldliness. They are living by the flesh and not by the Spirit. And since there is no evidence of the fruit of the Spirit in their lives, we can conclude that they are, in fact, devoid of the Spirit and will not inherit the kingdom of God. They are not of God, they are not in Christ, they never were in Christ, they are ungodly, worldly scoffers, and all they will do is cause division in the church. And Jude's warning flag is beware! You see what they are, you see what they do, beware of them, do not follow them, do not go down that road. That's a very important and a very necessary warning, isn't it? 
over the years I've tried to pay attention to the root causes of why various denominations or, or churches divide and fall apart. Very rarely throughout the history of the church has it ever been because of real doctrinal convictions that have brought about division. It's almost always some form of worldliness, even when it's presented as a doctrinal issue. Division in churches and denominations usually takes on one of two paths. It's either because one group is introducing something that would be an attempt to appeal to culture or, or to the world to make the church more acceptable according to the world's standards. So those who have biblical convictions and fortitude to stand against them will end up leaving and, and going away and uh, oftentimes starting a new church or something along those lines or denomination. In that case, uh, worldliness enters through uh, teaching or through practice, normalizing the works of the flesh and letting the world dictate that, the ways in which the church is going to operate. That's one form. The other way we see worldliness and division is more difficult to discern because it may not be a specific belief. It may not be a specific practice. It puts on the air of godliness. It uses all of the right language. But it is in the way in which conflict is handled. A lot of times there may be a presenting issue that may cause disagreement, but that disagreement is not worthy of division. However... The way in which that disagreement is approached, the way that it's handled, the way that it's worked out or defended may be in a very worldly way. And in that sense, we're no better off. I've seen men defend what they assume to be biblical truths in such a way that you would think they'd never read anything in the scriptures about the way they're to conduct themselves with their hearts and their tongues. It can be shameless, and we all need to guard against this because what ends up happening is that a particular issue which shouldn't end in division does end in division, not because it's worthy of division, but because of how things were discussed and debated with the inclusion of the world's ways of dealing with conflict, rejecting the biblical care that ought to be taken with humility and patience and wisdom and gentleness. And brothers and sisters, it's a warning to all of us that we must be very careful as a church to guard against worldliness. We must always examine what we teach. We must always examine what we do in terms of our undertaking as a church and our practices and worship in light of Scripture. It can be tempting to compromise. It can be tempting to want to incorporate new things and new ways into what God has given us in His Word but wholesale worldliness is not something that happens overnight most of the time. It's usually incremental. It happens bit by bit, little by little, piece by piece. And before you know it, everything has turned to where the question is no longer, what does God's Word say? The question is now, has God really said? We must value the truth of Scripture so much that we would hold on to that over and above anything else. That we would not fall away from God's Word into the tempting snares of the world, no matter what. And as a church, we have a responsibility corporately to do that, but we are more effective in doing that corporately if all of us are seeking to employ that in our lives individually. The first place Jude would have each and every one of us to look to get a sense of the faith once for all delivered to the saints and whether or not it's slipping away from us is in our own hearts and in our own homes. 
Look for worldliness. I can say for all of us, in some way, in some form, it is most certainly there at some point. And if we don't deal with it appropriately, if we let it sit, if we let it rest, it will cause division. It will cause division in your home. It will cause division in your church. Beware. That's the warning. If we are going to avoid being apostate and walking away from the truth that's been delivered to us, we must avoid worldliness. Well, the second thing Jude points us to that we might avoid embracing the false teaching of the apostates, following their path as mockers of God, is to keep ourselves in the love of God. We see that in verses 20 and 21. Keep yourself in the love of God. Jude writes, But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Now, one of the things that we emphasize over and over again, and rightly so, is that we as Christians are saved by God solely based upon His grace alone. We can never be too clear about that. It is nothing we've done. It is not because of who we are. It is not because... Uh, it, it's, it's not because of what we've not done that we're saved, and, and there's nothing I can do or nothing I can say that will earn my salvation. You and I and anyone who has ever lived who is justified, who is made right before God, is justified solely on the basis of Jesus' perfect law-fulfilling life, Jesus' sacrificial sinner's death on a cross, and Jesus' resurrection from the dead to secure us everlasting life. And that's applied to us. It is credited to us based on nothing other than God's gracious and loving desire to do so. You had nothing to do with that. This is the heart, this is the essence of the gospel, and we can never hear that enough. We can never uh, remind ourselves of that enough. We must always be mindful of what the gospel is and be reminding ourselves of that every day, lest we fall into patterns of attempting to earn something or assume that we can, uh, we can make ourselves more acceptable or more lovable before God. If you are in Christ, you are accepted because of Christ and all that He has done. So you cannot, and indeed you should not, attempt to earn anything from God whatsoever. Now, that being said, the Christian faith is not a faith of works, but it is a faith that works. In other words, when we are made new creations in Christ, it will be evidenced in our lives through our good works. The Apostle Paul highlights this reality in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. He writes this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. It's exactly as we've just said. He goes on, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see the two parts of what he's writing here? The order is vitally important. You're saved by grace alone, full stop. There is, no, uh, th- there is no addition to that. If you are saved, it is by God's grace alone. But you were saved in order that you will do the good works that God has prepared beforehand for you to do. And often in the Christian life, we forget that reality. It's as if we say, I'm saved by grace, 
and God doesn't really expect anything of me beyond that. Well, he very much does expect something from you. He wants you to live in light of that salvation, and to the degree to which you are communing with him and having the experience of God in your life is dependent upon whether or not you are working out your salvation in the ways he calls you to. One of those things he calls us to here, as Jude writes, is that we are to build ourselves up in the most holy faith. How do we do that? He tells us, praying in the Holy Spirit, keeping ourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord. And in the context here, if we are to continue walking faithfully, not following after these apostate teachers, we must value our communion with God to such an extent that we will give up everything else that we might have it. We will not let it go. This is the attitude we're being called to here, that of everything else in the world, what is most valuable to me is my communion with God. Here's what Jude is saying very simply. If we are to be protected from being led astray, we must sustain ourselves in the process of sanctification. And to do that, we must pursue communion with God through the means of grace. Now, some of you laugh because you say, uh, here at church, if you answer a question, you can say either Jesus or means of grace, and 95% of the time you will be right. And that's probably true. But for those of you who aren't tracking and don't know exactly what I'm talking about, very quickly, the means of grace are the delivery systems that God has instituted to bring about grace in the lives of his people, to bring spiritual power, to bring spiritual change, to bring spiritual help and and, and spiritual strength and blessings into our lives. Grace comes from our Father through the Son, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the way God ordinarily does this is through ordinary means. There are means to bring about His ends. I hope we all understand what I'm saying there. So Christ has acquired grace for us, and He distributes that grace to or in us. And in order for that grace to be worked out in our lives, God has ordained the means or the methods by which He is going to distribute it. And these are the delivery systems that we're talking about. So what are those means of grace? Well, a lot of people want to call a lot of things means of grace, but there really are only a few which are often called the ordinary means. And here they are. One is Bible intake. That's either reading the Word of God or hearing the reading of the Word of God or hearing the preaching of the Word of God through sermons. So Bible intake, prayer, all kinds of prayers, prayers of thanksgiving, prayers of confession, prayers of supplication, prayers of intercession. Worship, and worship corporately is really where all of these things come together in one place, but worship corporately, worship as a family, worship individually. And then the two ordinances of the church, baptism and the Lord's Supper. All of these are the means of grace. And it's a legitimate question. It's an important question to ask Jude here. How do I keep myself in the love of God, building myself up in the most holy faith? And his response is that we are to pray in the Holy Spirit, keeping ourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord. So prayer is covered there, but I'll argue that the others are covered there as well. I know God's love and mercy how. I know it not just through my experience, but I know it most importantly through his word. I am built up in worship and and prayer and the Lord's Supper and baptism. All of these are essential elements. And brothers and sisters, if we are not doing these things in our lives, 
we will have a spiritual life that feels dry and lifeless, and we will be in real danger of taking on a life of worldliness. Without the means of grace in our lives, we're saying, Lord, I want a relationship with you, but I'll tell you what, I don't want to talk to you. I don't want you to talk to me. I don't want to spend any time with you. I don't want to share meals with you. I really don't want, and I won't have anything to do with you, but I love you, and I want you in my life, and I want you to save me. Guys, tell those things to your wife and see how that goes. Ladies, what if your children said those kinds of things to you? How strong are our relationships going to be? And all of us know in in just our friendships with others, if we don't keep in touch, if we don't talk or communicate on some level, we sort of move on from one another, don't we? That's how we're wired. And, And we shouldn't assume that with God, if we're not making an effort to maintain our relationship with Him, that we, in time, won't simply move on. Now, if you're in Christ, the great news is that He's never going to move on from you. But in your lack of communing with God, you very much might find yourself drifting away from Him. I'm sure all of us, to some extent, have experienced seasons of laziness or spiritual dryness. But we must be aware of that danger and keep ourselves in the love of God that we might not follow after these false teachers, that we might not be with other apostates. Keep yourself in the love of God through the means of grace. And these means are things that we should value to the extent that we will not let them go. We see their value and we put the right price on them and don't just let them go. Well, last thing he points us to this morning, Jude calls us very simply to be merciful. Look at verses 22 and 23. He writes, Have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now, there are actually three groups of people that Jude is mentioning here. All of them are at various places as we talk about the false teaching. None of the three are in a good place. Briefly, we'll consider each one because they are, these are the ones that we're really appealing to. If you do not see your faith in Christ as a valuable treasure worth everything in the world, far greater than anything else you could hope or imagine, worth giving everything for, you're in a dangerous place. You're in a soul-endangering place. If you're willing to give up your salvation for something else, you're in a very bad place. And as the church, we are called to respond to people in those places, and yet we're called to respond a little bit differently depending on where they are in light of the false teaching. But all of these three ways are different ways of applying mercy or of showing mercy. The first person we see is the one who doubts. We see that in verse 22. Have mercy on those who doubt. Now, Judas calling us here to be kind, to be gentle, and pointing those who doubt to the truth. I can assure you from my travels, from my conversations with other people, from just being an observer, from being a reader, there are many people out there who fall into this category right here. Another way to describe this person is it's not one that necessarily doubts the faith on the whole, but they're one who's confused about the truth because of uh, what they have and haven't been taught. 
And in the context of Jude specifically, we're talking about those who are confused because of the false teaching they've received. False teachers have a tendency to go after people who are weak and unknowing. People who don't know any different. Listen, it's only by God's grace that any of us, that any one of us, when we first became Christians, weren't targeted by false teachers and brought to a place where we completely misread, misunderstood, misinterpreted, and misapplied the Scriptures. Not because we wanted to dishonor God, but because we didn't know any better based on the teaching that we had received. When a person is not strong in doctrinal convictions or strong in their communion with God, they are primed for an attack by false teachers. It may be in a book, it may be on the radio, it might be on television, it might be in some seminar they attend, it might be through some personal contact or some literature that comes, shows up at your door one day. It might be in a lot of ways. It might be someone even in their church who begins to to latch on to their weakness, uh, capturing their doubt, causing them to become confused. These are not people who are enemies of Christ or who reject the gospel. No, these are people who are confused and, and they're doubting. They're doubting themselves. They're doubting what they understand. It's not to say that they're not sure what truth is. There's a ton of these people in the world. They might know something of the truth. They might believe the truth. And yet there's a lot of things surrounding the truth that they don't understand or have been led astray in. Some of those types of people might be sitting here this morning. And it's not to say that you're not a believer. It's to say that you don't know what you don't know. And you're prone to believe things because they haven't been exposed uh, to you as being false uh, in a substantial way. And if that's you, you might say something like, but I'm open to the truth, and praise God for that. But you need to remember, if you're open to the truth, you're also open to error. We need to guard ourselves. We need to begin to understand the teaching of the Scriptures. We will know people who might be Christians their whole lives and who never actually go very deep in their understanding and convictions, and so they never go very far in their communion with God. That means they're always going to have doubts. They're always going to be confused. They're never going to have any great assurance. They're always going to question their salvation. They're going to really struggle in life to work through uh, finding peace and contentment. And when suffering and trials come in their lives, they're really going to struggle because they don't know what they don't know. And so Jude is saying, listen, church, you have a responsibility to move toward those who are confused and have mercy on them. It's very likely that they're brothers and sisters in Christ, but they don't know. Don't write them off because they're either not sure of what they believe or they're weak or they've been led astray. Understand that they have eternal souls and they need the mercy of Christ. So show mercy to them. In my experience, these are people that if you spend time with them and you show them what you're trying to talk about from the Word of God, in time they'll come around and they'll begin to grow. But until someone takes the time and and makes the commitment to steer them rightly, they will continue in a confused state of mind. So Jude is telling us, don't let them stay there. Show them mercy. Be merciful. Well, the second group he addresses are those who are in the fire. He says we are to snatch them out. Notice the language here. How do we show mercy? By saving them from the fire. 
Now, these are people who aren't simply confused, but they have bought into the false teaching, in many ways wholesale. They bought their own lies. They are, they're being singed by the flames of hell. They're in it, and so we're being called to a rescue operation. These are the people that when you say anything contrary to or about their false teacher, they will jump on you, and they will defend, and they will attack. They will tell you you are judgmental. They will tell you that you shouldn't oppose one of God's servants, that you obviously don't know what you're talking about. After all, look how successful they are. They have a TV show. They have a big house. They have a lot of money. They have millions of people that listen to them. They have private jets. They're successful. You don't know what you're talking about. Brothers and sisters, these are people that are in the fire, and they don't even know it. And Jude says, listen, you need to do what you can to get them out of there. And sometimes that work is painful because you get out in the middle of the fire. We're going to get burned a little bit. There will be some bumps. There will be some bruises. There will be some battle. And it won't always be described by others who are looking on as nice. Being merciful and saving someone from death isn't always nice. If you're standing on the tracks and a train is coming and someone runs to push you out of the way so you don't get hit, that push isn't going to look and it's not going to feel nice, but they just saved your life. Listen, one of the things that false teachers are very good at is convincing everyone who listens to them just how right they are and just how much they deserve your devotion. It's really incredible as you talk to some of these people who are standing in the fire, how deceived they are because they've, they've been lured and they've been persuaded by these false teachers that they get direct revelations from God. And they can't be wrong about anything, that they have a special calling, they have an anointing on their lives to do what they do and to question what they're doing is to go against God Himself. So they will twist Scripture. They will manipulate people to follow after them whenever they do something or wherever they go. No matter what they do, they're powerful. They're deceptive. They have a tight grip on the hearts of people. So to remove them from the fire will sometimes take some rather aggressive rescue operations. But it is necessary. By and large, I believe this task should be undertaken by those who are especially gifted for it. This is a hard work, and a person needs to be well-equipped and grounded, and most importantly, in good communion with God, because they're about to go into the enemy's territory here. And if we're not standing faithfully in communion with God, then uh, we ourselves are at risk. We need to have our swords sharpened. We need to have our armor on. We need to have our battle strategy outlined. And when the opportunity presents itself, we must go in hard and not back down. And you're going to be attacked. It will happen. You'll be attacked not just by the enemy and not just by those who stand with the enemy, but by other Christians, because it doesn't always look, it doesn't always look kind, it doesn't always look nice, but remember, we're rescuing them from the fire, and in time, should the Lord use you to persuade them, they will thank you, 
People who've been persuaded that they were standing in the fire and have been snatched from the fire are very thankful. Some of you have gone through that. You've been snatched from the fire. You've been persuaded through some rough and tumble, through some difficult conversations. But in the end, you're thankful that God has used to do it. Now, the last group that Jude mentions here are those who are not just committed, but they are the propagators of error themselves. These are the false teachers and their closest associates. And Jude is giving a warning that the mercy given here is to be with fear. What mercy do you show a false teacher? Well, this is it. To be merciful to a false teacher is to make it known to them that they are a false teacher. And how does that go? (laughs) How do we even have those opportunities? The warning that we're given is because those people are typically very articulate. They have been trained to articulate their system. They know how to give all the answers to all the questions you're going to raise. They're subtle. They're satanic. They are missionaries of error. They are advocates of error. They are the teachers of their lies. And when you get near them, you're in a dangerous place. So he says we have to hate even the garment polluted by the flesh. Because the fear is that we might be corrupted by their evil ourselves. They're so evil that if we get too close, we might be corrupted. We can't make a friendship out of this. We can't get intimidated in accepting uh, these people We have to understand that they are the most adept enemies of the truth. They are the most highly skilled agents of the kingdom of darkness. And we don't want to get anywhere near their corruption. Brothers and sisters, the language here is actually, it's it's kind of graphic. He's literally talking about undergarments that touch the body. So he's saying, be very careful as you approach these people. Um, you, can, you, you, gonna, you need to call them out in their air, you need to tell them they're false teachers, but you need to almost be phobic about doing that and despising what they're presenting because it's stained by filthy matter by their bodily functions. Just as you wouldn't handle and embrace uh, the filthy, soiled undergarments of another person, so also you won't handle and embrace their false teaching. Be warned, beware. That gives us an indication of what God thinks of false teaching. So, brothers and sisters, we must value the faith to such an extent that we are always aware of our need to hold to it, to embrace it, to never let it go so that we might keep ourselves in the love of God, so that we might have mercy on the confused, we might rescue those who are in the fire, we might approach those who are rejecting the truth in word and deed, leading many hundreds of thousands and dare I say millions, astray with them. We must know the gospel. We must cherish the gospel. And if you are not in Christ, I'm urging you today that you are standing in the fire. And you may not know it. You may not understand what I mean by that. But you are, I know, you are searching in your life to find hope, to find peace, to find satisfaction in something. And everywhere you search comes up short. The only place you will search and find true peace and satisfaction and hope is in Christ alone. And the call on your life today is to lay down all of yourself 
and to put all of your faith in Christ, to repent of your sins and to walk faithfully with Him. And as you do, He will receive you joyfully with peace because He has given His life that we might live.